Lafreta is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from Greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Thank you to SUP China and the Seneca Network team, especially co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. Welcome to Ta for Ta. Today we have Jamie Bars, the Chief Eating Officer of Untour Food Tours, that started in Shanghai and is now expanded to Beijing and is the city's top food tour providers. I I think you'll do a better job of telling us your story. And I just wanted to hand this over to you, Jamie, to tell listeners a little bit about who you are and how you've gotten to where you are today. Well, thank you so much, first of all, for having me. I really appreciate it. As you said, my name is Jamie, and I'm originally from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And I moved to China for the first time in 2005 as a study abroad student. Absolutely fell in love with the city and especially the food. And went back to university to finish up my degree and moved out here a month after I graduated. I've been living in China full time since 2007, and just absolutely love it here. So I have to ask you, what brought you back to China in 2007? Yeah, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my life、uh, when I was graduating from university, and I had studied Mandarin for the first time when I was in Beijing doing my study abroad. And then took it for three more semesters, so had a little bit of Mandarin under my belt when I moved out here. But yeah, I just thought, when is when am I going to get the chance to go live in a foreign country for a while and figure out what I want to do、uh, with my life? And instead of going to law school and going very deeply into debt, I came out here and just never left. And so your first city that you were living in was Shanghai. What was it like? Being in Shanghai when you came back in 2007,、uh, I actually first moved to Hangzhou and did a language immersion course, so that was great. And then I started working in PR when I moved back to Shanghai, which was a very interesting、uh, market to be in. That was my degree、uh, when I studied at university. I had also minored in applied physics and justice, so obviously my interests were kind of all over the place. And Shanghai was in 2007 a completely different. City than it is now, a lot more street food out and about, but it's it's always been a fun, fast-changing city, and that's what I love so much about it. So you had been to a few different cities in China, and then you were working in PR there, but it didn't seem like PR was your your true passion when you moved to Shanghai. And I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I, I have to say, like my the reason that I moved back to Shanghai, I think like one of the the major drivers for me was just how much I loved the food. So like the best part of my day when I was working at the PR jobs was going out for lunch and just finding these little hole in the wall vendors, or even back then it was a lot of street food vendors,、um, and just getting to know the people who are making the food and learning about all the different ingredients. Food has always been a big thing for me. I'm originally from the south, we're feeders down there, so that. Was always my favorite part of being in Shanghai or being in China in general was just exploring the different food. That's so interesting. When you were exploring, did you know that this was going to be something that you'd want to make a career out of, or was it just something that, as I think we'd mentioned, was something that you were drawn to? Oh no, it was definitely something I was just drawn to. It never really occurred to me to turn it into something that I could make a living out of. I basically had these little versions of routes that I have now for our food tour company that I created to help friends and family who are visiting, or friends of friends who would come through town,、um, and I would show them some super local places that I had found during my explorations, and that was 
kind of the beginning of it, but it wasn't until someone suggested to me that I should make it an actual job that it actually occurred to me I could do that. And my business partner, who is also from the States but has lived in China for quite a long time, he had gone to business school and moved back to Shanghai, and when he got back, he came to me and said, I want to start a company in China, would you be interested? And I said, oh, I actually have this idea that I've kind of been throwing around in my head. So that's how we started Unto. It was very organic. I actually want to hear about that a little bit more. What was that conversation like where was this a friend? Was this a family member that said, hey, you should start a food tour company? And where did that conversation go from there? Yeah, well, in, in 2007, food tours as an industry was very much in its infancy. So when I like came out here, that wasn't really even something I had thought of. Um, mm. And then in 2010, around when we initially started, I had been doing tours with a few friends of friends, and someone said, you know, I did something similar to this in Istanbul. Um, and so I, I looked it up and, and found out about this great company that was then called Istanbul Eats, is now called Culinary Backstreets. And I just loved the idea of it. And I've since gone on their tour, and it's amazing. But yeah, that was basically someone just suggested it to me more than me coming up with it myself. I didn't even know the industry existed. Right. So from what I understand, you were weren't full-time for the first two years, and you were actually working at Shanghai Talks. What Was there a reason that held you back from jumping in full-time right away? Was this idea that you always had in advance that you wanted to test out the waters before you dove right in? I'm curious about this transition from your previous career to really building and growing on tour food tours. Yeah, so we had our first tour on December 1st, 2010. Um, and I did not go full-time with the company until the end of February 2012. So it was a little over 14 months. And the reason we did that is because initially we ran a private tour schedule. So kind of as and when people were in town. So it wasn't as, as regular as it is now with our public tour schedule. Uh, my business partner, Kyle, was doing translation work. So he also had a, a pretty freelance schedule. And working at a, a magazine, they're very easy on the hours. I mean, you'll work long hours, but if you want to come in at 11 a.m. or you leave a little bit early, so long as you're getting your writing in, then, then usually it's okay. And so for a while, it was actually kind of nice to have this side hustle that was bringing in money in addition to my editor position. But eventually it just it got too busy. And so I had to make a choice between staying at the magazine or going full-time with Untour. And so we both my business partner and I decided to do that in February 2012. So Jamie, do you still do you still write anymore? Um, not very much. Uh, I still do the occasional bit of food writing, but most of it is in the service of Untour, um, something to promote the company more than just you know freelance writing. Now I have to ask you, what do you think clicked to boost the popularity of Untour? You said it started primarily as more private tours. Do you think it was a slow build or do you think it was a specific event that catapulted the company to where it is now? Yeah, I, mean, I think it was a couple things. We moving over into a public tour schedule once we started to get enough traction in online reviews and people writing about us. And so switching to that um, obviously opened up a lot of opportunities for us and people found us a lot more naturally that way. Um, also, it's much cheaper for people to book us as a public tour than a private tour. So that opened it up to people who couldn't maybe afford a private tour in the past. But I think the real big um, piece that we got was being in the New York Times. 
which really launched us. I remember going one month to the next month and just seeing the number of bookings and how quickly it shot up and thinking, oh gosh, we're going to have to hire someone else to help us guide because we don't have, me and Kyle are no longer enough. And what was the story behind that? Who found you from the New York Times? How how did that even come about? That was an amazing coincidence. So we actually were recommended to the writer by two different people um, in completely different walks of life. One of them was the piano teacher of one of our close friends in Shanghai. He lived across the hall in Brooklyn from a our friend's old piano teacher. Um, And she had heard about us from our friend. And so she was like, oh, you're going to Shanghai. You should meet my former student and also go on this food tour. So that was amazing. But then the other people who told him about us were actually the Istanbul Eats Culinary Backstreets guys. And they had done a tour with him before. And we had met them at that point and were doing some cooperative things with them. And so they recommended us as well. So he thought, oh, I have to go which was great. That is really great. And you're still doing things with Culinary Backstreets now, right? Yes. So um, I do a bit of writing for them, which is one of my favorite places that I do still get to write for. They also uh, promote our tours on their website, but they specifically focus not on you know brand new restaurants or anything that is you know shiny and trendy or anything like that. It's more family-owned places, these small hole-in-the-walls that don't necessarily get these media blitzes, but are incredibly important for the community and you know some of the best food that you're ever going to have. So we really want to celebrate those people. And I think in a lot of your writing, at least from what I've read, you're often quoted saying that eating in China can be very intimidating. And I was hoping that you could expand for listeners a little bit more what you mean when you say that. Sure. So, I mean, when you go to Europe, if you're in Italy or France, and you look at a menu and you don't actually speak the language, you're still able to kind of suss out what is going to be landing on a plate in front of you. But if you walk into a Chinese restaurant and look at the characters on the wall, you have to have some sort of context in order to understand anything. And so just the idea of like, oh, what's going to be on my plate um, is intimidating. And add to that sort of the stereotypes of what some foreigners think Chinese food can be. And it just makes it even more intimidating. So, you know, we always get people who I would say less so in the in the past couple of years but when we started we would get many people who would email in after they booked saying just FYI I don't want to eat dog and we'd say don't worry you'd have to look really hard for that so uh that that can be the intimidating aspect of it they'll often see you know just like meat if the menu is translated on the menu and you know they're like oh mystery meat what is it it's pork it's always going to be pork 70% of the meat eaten in China is pork if it's any other meat they're going to specify that it's lamb or beef or something like that but if you just see meat on a menu it's going to be pork so when I first came to China um, when I lived in Beijing as a study abroad student I didn't speak a word of Chinese I couldn't read I couldn't write and The first night we arrived in Beijing, this guy who had grown up speaking Chinese with his family, who was in our program, offered to take us out to eat and order for us. And we all thought, great, this is going to be awesome because none of us know what to order. And then uh, he, of course, decided to play like a little trick on all of us and order the more adventurous foods on the menu. So things like drunken shrimp, which are the shrimp that are still alive, but stunned by, you know, soaking them in alcohol for a couple hours. Um, Super fresh, delicious now, but, you know, for your first night in China, maybe not the first thing you want to eat. And we also had bullfrog, which you're not great with chopsticks. And at the time I was not, can be very tricky to eat with all the bones. (laughs) And yeah, and so after that first night, I was like, oh God, what have I gotten myself into? And then then that same week, I went to a local um, university cafeteria and 
they had a menu that was about 800 dishes long because they were catering to people from all over the country who were at the university, from Sichuan to you know Guangdong to up north. And this graduate student had taken it upon himself to translate the menu from Mandarin, from characters, into Pinyin, and then into English. So that became basically my Bible. I totally, unabashedly stole one and used it. Um, and within about you know a month of living in Beijing, I could order a banquet, but I could not tell a taxi driver how to turn right. So yeah, <laughs> food Chinese has always been my best aspect of my Chinese. Those are just incredible stories from the start of your experience discovering food in China. And I think it's interesting to see that you are able to share that with other people. I think another thing I want to ask you about, often linked with intimidation, I also think that food in China is often considered very underrated. I would love to hear you just refute that or add some more nuance. I mean, you don't really see Chinese Michelin restaurants or the cuisine really coming into the international mindset in the same way other cuisines maybe have. I just feel that you might have a more informed take on this that is different from my own. Yeah, I, I think there's several reasons for that. And it it's definitely comes from a place of, of misrepresentation and ignorance rather than from a place of racism. But there is a... The regional cuisines of China are, are, I would say, the most underappreciated, underrated aspect of Chinese cuisine because most people have only ever had Cantonese food when they've eaten what they think is Chinese food mm. because, you know, the first wave of migration out of China was mostly Cantonese. And so a lot of times people come to China and you're showing them, you know, different foods from all over the region that are very distinct, very different. I mean, if you eat Sichuanese one night and Shanghainese the next night, it's, I mean, the flavor profiles would not be more different. Not to mention you have different cooking techniques all over the country as well. And so I think that a lot of people just don't understand how incredibly diverse Chinese cuisine could be. It, it would be like someone saying, oh, I ate European cuisine last night. Like if you look at German versus, you know, Italian food or French food or Spanish food, I mean, it couldn't be more different. And that's basically the same size as China. So, you know, Europe's even smaller. So the provinces have these amazing distinct cuisines that people don't really understand or appreciate before they actually come out here. It's really difficult to get things like Yunnan food outside of China because the ingredients are unique to the area and they have to be fresh in order for them to, to work. You know, you don't want anything, um, you know, if you're eating like edible flowers and these beautiful mushrooms, you want them to be super fresh. And that's what makes Yunnan cuisine so great. So that, that makes it a little bit difficult for people who just never experienced China. And then when it comes to the Michelin Guide, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen a city react more in one voice than when the Michelin Guide was released in Shanghai. The fact that basically the only Chinese restaurants on it, and a lot of them were not Chinese, were Cantonese restaurants, I think just underscores that you know, trend towards Chinese food being equated with Cantonese food in the West. Also, it's just really hard as a Michelin diner to eat at a Chinese restaurant and really understand what the menu is trying to do. Because Michelin diners, like it's known that the reviewers, Michelin reviewers have to eat alone. And no one would ever eat a Chinese meal alone. Everything is meant to be shared. You know, there's, that's just not the way that the cuisine is, is meant to be eaten. And so I think that that also exacerbates the problem of Chinese food being a little misunderstood. Well, I mean, isn't that the, the root of a lot of these high-end cuisines and 
restaurants is that it is sometimes and often a riff on local flavors, local culture, the the core of what makes uh, a type of food the type of food that it is. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, Chinese food, is, is like all cuisines, is, is constantly evolving. I mean, you have a lot of really young chefs who have been trained in maybe the French technique because that's what a lot of the culinary schools teach now. And bringing it back um, to, you know, uh, there's a lot of excellent restaurants in Taipei right now that are um, doing sort of these local Taiwanese ingredients but using a lot of French techniques and they're doing amazing food. And so when you see things like that, or in, or in Shanghai, you have this izakaya, um, which is you know typically what you think of like a Japanese bar where it's really good drinks with small plates of food. Um, and there's one in Shanghai that's called Oha that does, they call themselves like a Guizhou izakaya. So um, the flavors are very much from Guizhou, which is one of the poorest provinces in China and not really famous um, around the country for its food. But you go there and you have some of the smoked bacon and these bean dishes that are absolutely fantastic and pair that with a cocktail, you know, or a natural wine. So it's definitely evolving in a way that is changing the perspectives from both the chefs and the diners. Okay, I want to ask you some more questions about the nitty-gritty of running a food tour business in China. I First of all, I know you said that the breakfast tour that you do was similar to something that you'd almost curated by accident with family and friends that were coming to visit Shanghai. But I know you have more than just the breakfast tour. When you first were conceiving these ideas, what was it like going out and trying to find these street vendors? What were their reactions? How did you even pitch these tours to them? Because, of course, they must be your partners. What was that like? Yeah, it's really funny. Um, I go to these you know, food tour conferences all over the world, and I talk to people who are you know, telling me about how they go to the same places that have been open for like six generations in Madrid or you know tapas bars like that, and I'm just like, oh, I'm so jealous. Um, I mean, Shanghai and Beijing are both constantly changing. There's a lot of things that are up in the air when it comes to just you know locations of restaurants almost every month, um, and so we that's always a struggle for us. But we, for example, had a tour. Our night eats tour in Shanghai was in the Laoshimen area. And that whole neighborhood has just been getting raised over the past year. So we knew that was coming. We could see the construction creeping in. And so we had to start finding new places that weren't in that neighborhood. So that was actually a really hard move for us because we had been in that neighborhood for over seven years. You know, we had to leave our vendors who we'd been working with for such a long time. And these are people who, like, we, yeah, we got to know their family. They got to know ours. It's really difficult when you have to change things up, but it became necessary. And actually, about two months after we left the vendor we'd been working with since we had started, their restaurant got shut down by the government. And not because they had done anything wrong. It was just because the government had decided to close that street. So that can be, you know, a frustrating experience, but it also helps us find new places and keeps things fresh for us. So, you know, going out and having to do tastings of restaurants is is one of the most fun parts of the job. I mean, that being said, you know, not all the places we go to are good. And when we're doing testing, we'll often go to like five restaurants for lunch and five restaurants for dinner. And typically what we'll do is we'll 
take the food to go so we don't offend anyone. If we're only, even if it's good, we're only gonna be able to take two or three bites of each dish if we're gonna eat at five different restaurants and try a bunch of stuff. But in general, when we start working with vendors, we try to explain what we do, but even you know, a lot of foreigners have never heard of food tours before. And when we started in 2010, we were talking to our vendors explaining that we were gonna bring foreigners there and it was right around the time of the expo and there was a, you know, the signs of a better city, better life, and everyone needed to be super winning. And, um, and so the, a lot of the street food was getting stamped out at that point. And so they were telling us like, oh, no, 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 you don't want to bring foreigners to, you know, this little Jim Bing stall in the, down an alleyway. You need to take them to like the fancy French restaurants on the Bund. And we were trying to explain back to them that no, no, foreigners really, really want to eat like local food when they come. They can eat French food back where they live. They're never going to get to try this dish again. And so... Uh, it did take a while to kind of, you know, develop a, a vocabulary for what we do. I mean, it's not really, there's no real words for like food tour in Chinese. So it's yeah, trying to explain, like talk your way around, like what a food tour is. Because if you say food tour to a foreigner, they can kind of put two and two together. But if you're saying it to a migrant worker from Anhui who, you know, runs a guotie stall, they may not be able to really understand why anyone would purchase a ticket to go on such a thing. Right. I actually, I want to learn a little bit more. I was recently in Beijing and I went to Tsinghua and I had my favorite Jianbing stall and it wasn't there anymore. Can you explain a little bit more about why street there's, I feel like it's just been a crusade against Jianbing <laughs> and I was very upset. Why has there been this recent food stall shutdown? What is the thesis behind it from a government perspective? And can you just provide some more color to that? Sure. I, I don't think it's been very recent. I think it's been like a war, basically, for the past almost decade. I think in general, it makes some sense, like if you look at it from a, a sympathetic perspective for the government, um, they're trying to make the Chinese cities appear more modern. And they're completely glossing over the potential tourism factor that they could have. You know, foreigners who are coming to China want to eat local foods. They want to walk down the hutongs and be able to, like, look in windows and see what's going on. They don't want to see just row lanes and lanes of bricks. Um, but they're modernizing. You know, a lot of times these people who live in the alleyway homes or the hutong homes, they don't have proper plumbing they don't have really that much light because they have these tiny windows and so they're modernizing these people's homes which is a good thing but they're taking away a lot of the local character and closing a lot of the wet markets and the street food vendors that people have been eating at for their entire lives so i think there there are other ways to do it i mean you can see like singapore has created these great hawker centers and I was talking to a friend recently about can you just imagine if there was like a warehouse in china where you gathered all of the best street food vendors who've all been closed up over the past five years and just let them operate legally. How, how great would that be? Yeah, would, people would flock to that. Um, and it would be a great source of like pride for the locals and um, yeah, great source of revenue for the government. They would get, actually get taxes from the, from the vendors if they were allowed to operate legally. So I think there's a better way to do it. And I don't think it's a, been a very nuanced um, execution of the, of the strategy, but I, I understand why they're trying to do it. And you were also talking about some of the the families that you met uh, over the course of the time that you've been doing tours and how they met your family and you met theirs. Is there any vendors that have stuck out particularly to you, either their stories or the ways that you've 
interacted with them. Back when we had our night eats tour over in Laoshimen uh, in Shanghai, there was this really lovely woman who sold bing. She had like a tongyo bing and jang bing. She had a whole variety of different types of like savory pancakes. And it was down a, a street food lane uh, that was called Supai Lo Lu. And it actually got shut down in the middle of one of our tours. I feel really bad because it was one of our guide's first ever tours. He'd finished his training and our my business partner Kyle was along with him to help out just in case anything crazy happens. And then they turned down Supai Lolu and there's literally Chungwan ripping up people's stalls and throwing stuff into a bin. It was crazy. But I was in the UK while this was all happening and I got a message from Kyle and when I had like gotten to my phone, I started messaging this woman who had, you know, she had great bing, but she was also just the, she would just, you know, see us walking down the food street and just immediately start shouting and she would, you know, make sure that I was wearing enough clothes and was just the sweetest lady in the world. And when she found out I was getting married, she was like, oh, I can't wait for you to come back because we're your office and you have to bring us candies. And I was like, yes, of course, I'll bring candies because that's the Chinese tradition when you after you get married, you bring, you know, little candies to your office to give to all your coworkers. And then I never heard from her again. I had her phone number. We tried to call her. Her phone was turned off and we never heard from her again. So I have literally no idea what happened to anyone on that street because I tried to call several of our vendors from the UK for weeks and nothing. So when things like that happen, it's, you know, it's also scary. You just don't know what happens. But yeah, that was, that was pretty upsetting. I have, an, I have a great vendor in Beijing who literally has a Mao, he has Mao Zedong's face tattooed on his arm. And of course, in the summertime, he never wants to wear a shirt. You know, he's got the Beijing belly out, he's got the whole shirt off, he's got his beads on, and he's just like the, you know, the biggest hit on our tours. If you, when you walk into his shop, he sells chicken wings, like very famous chicken wings in the city. Immediately, you've got, you know, the picture of Xi Jinping on the wall got every all the like Zhou Enlai's in there as well. He has a calendar that's marked the date of when Hong Kong came back to China in 97. I mean, he's the most patriotic man in the entire world. And yeah, he's just such a hit on our tours and such a character. And he's constantly bringing in these weird, like endangered animals where you're like, what, why do you have that? And he's like, oh, I'm going to save it. And you're like, okay. Cause it's like his house is on the other side. And so he'll show you like which kind of bird he got this week or, you know, it's, it's absolutely hilarious. So you, I mean, you really do get to know these people and they're um, such characters. It makes it so much fun. That's so great. And that it's consistent business as well um, to really probably develop these partnerships over time. Yeah, that's true. But although sometimes people, you know, expect that we get some sort of discount because we're returning customers and especially at some of our quick service stops where, you know, we're getting Xiaolongbao or something that, you know, comes out really fast and they don't like us at all. Like we actually have to tip them. You know, we, we pay by the head as opposed to what we actually order because there's, you know, a group of eight tourists plus the guide and, you know, we order maybe a, like two longs of Xiaolongbao, so two steamer baskets full. Whereas if anyone else was taking up that table space, it would be many more longs. So they don't really like it when we come in. So we've worked out with some of our vendors, you know, that we pay by the head as opposed to how much we actually order so that they're still excited when we walk in. Because there's nothing worse than having a vendor be like, no, get out. We don't want you here when you have eight tourists with you. Right, because you guys are eating a lot probably over the course of a tour. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. We usually have, 
I mean, what would equate to one very large meal over the course of a full tour? Right, which is Chinese style in the sense that it's lots of little plates and from all different places. So I think that is fitting. I still can't get over this poor guide when it was his first tour. And I was realizing that it's not just you and your partner uh, always giving the tours. What was it like growing your team and maybe trusting other people to maintain the relationship with vendors, to give charismatic tours, to do all the things that you probably had fallen into step with doing. Yeah, no, that was uh, definitely one of the scariest parts of growing the business. I remember when we hired our first guide who wasn't myself or Kyle and waking up every single time that they had a tour, if they had the breakfast tour at 8 a.m. on a Sunday, I was still up at like 7.30 just being like, okay, they're going to be there, right? They're totally going to show up. And now we have a lot more guides and they're all fantastic. And honestly, I think that's one of our strengths is that we have a lot of very different people and different opinions. And so you get uh, everyone's tour is unique based on who they have as their guide and they bring different interests um, and different perspectives into their tour. So I actually really enjoy going on different tours with different guides and just kind of seeing how they present stuff um, and learning about things from them. You know, sometimes they'll talk about how their grandmother made it or, you know, what they ate growing up. And so you get to learn a lot of really interesting facts from everyone. So maybe this gives you a little bit more time to also continue to explore outside of the tours. That's probably not true. But is there any Chinese food that you've discovered recently that you've really taken a liking to? Hmm. Let's see. I, well, one of the really nice, I mean, we were very sad to have our Laoshimen route closed, but when we had to start looking for new places to eat or to design our route around, uh, one of my friends took me to this Ningbo style restaurant. And I, this was a little over a year ago, and I tried so many dishes then that after having lived in a, for a decade, over a decade in China, I had never tried before. And that was just completely eye-opening. And it was almost something that we we had to sit down as a team and think about whether or not we wanted to add this place to the tour because it was so good and so amazing. But we were trying to figure out if that was because our perspectives were that we've tried food from all over China. And this was this place, like when you walk in, it looks like they've been there for years and years and their sign is still a paper sign. Like they have not invested any money in the decor. They recently renovated, which we always tell people on tours because they're like, wait, this is a recent renovation. They used floor tile for the wall tile because it was cheaper. Um, Like they do not put any money into the environment. It all goes directly into the food. But when you try their dishes, it's like nothing you've ever tried before in China. So they do like a um, a Huangyu Tai Tiao, which is uh, like a yellow croaker that's like battered and fried. And then on the side, they have this algae that's like native to Ningbo. It's sometimes in English called grass kelp. And they deep fry that as well. And it's like a savory cotton candy. It's delicious. Like I was, I'm not a seaweed person. That's one food that I really never got on board with. And I love this stuff. Um, And then like super thinly sliced bamboo that's fried up with duck breast ham and ginkgos and dried scallops and just these flavors that you've maybe had separately, but never together in a dish. And yeah, it was really, really excellent. So that was a revelation that we were like, okay, I think think that travelers will also get how special and how unique this restaurant is. And and they totally have. People are like, oh, this is really interesting and very different from what they expect, you know, Chinese food to look like. 
I'm smiling and salivating on the other side of this micro now. <laughs> I could hear you talk about this all all day. Do you also think, and I, I believe this myself, is that you can really understand more and have more insight into a culture that's not your own through the culinary habits and practices. Have you noticed anything from your guests on your tours that they learn about China by learning through the food? Or even for yourself? I mean, I think just even the basic understanding of like how large China is and how wildly different the different parts of China are is is something we try and talk about a lot on the tour because you know as I said earlier foreigners are very their con- their conception of Chinese food is Cantonese and that's what like most of the Chinatowns around the world are they're starting to be a little bit more of an influx of Mandarin and you know but most most of it is Cantonese and so we try and bring out the different flavors of the different parts of China and, and explain like well, you know, in this part, they're actually halal, so they don't eat pork. But 70% of the rest of the meat in China is all pork. And so you have, you know, in the deep south, they're more rice-based. In the north, you have more noodles and things like that. And when you start to explain how very different the regional cuisine is, people really start to think, wow, this is, this is not what I expected at all about Chinese food. Um, and in general, I mean, as someone who was born and raised in Tennessee, I grew up with a lot of, uh, whenever I would leave Tennessee and people would ask things like, oh, like, do you wear shoes? <laughs> you know, like, why, where are your overalls and, and things like that? And why don't you speak with a Southern accent? Um, and I think there's a lot of that misconception when it comes to traveling to China still present in Westerners today, where people are like, ooh, I really just, can you make sure I don't eat dog tonight? And you're like, yep, you're fine. It will, you'd actually have to look really hard for it if you wanted to, you know, and, and there's always someone making like the snide comment about like, ooh, what is the, you know, like what kind of meat is this? And, you know, it's actually, you know, a 5,000 year old cuisine that has a lot of refinement and is uh, incredibly diverse. And so when you start to dig into that history, it makes people really understand how long China has been around and how the culture goes back so much further than um, most other cultures. And, you know, it's a, it's definitely a, a window into what China is. Mm. And I have to ask this as well. Do you think that there is a specific or unique relationship between women and food in China in the way that in other cultures there may be an inextricable link or that it's, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. I think that's, that's an interesting thing to think about. I mean, you have a lot of Confucian values that kind of separate cooking people in the kitchen um, from, they, they don't really, Confucian values don't really approve of, of people using knives and things like that. So it would be even worse for a woman to handle a knife. And those sort of things, you know, trickle down over centuries and millennia and, and definitely cause uh, rifts. It's very rare that you see a woman in um, a Chinese commercial kitchen. And a lot of that is just to do with the physicality of the job. Uh, I have done cooking classes. I've worked uh, like a day in a Chinese restaurant just to see how it goes. Um, how did it go? And, and not well. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> well, yeah, I was, um, it was a really interesting opportunity. And, you know, they invited me in when it was, when it was gonna be slow, you know, and you have those 
lineup of walks with the real fire and there's just you know like you have your spoon and that's your cooking utensil everything is already gonna your mise en place is all set up you have all everything chopped you have all the sauces ready and you just use that ladle really to pick up which sauces you need to throw in the wok when you're wok frying stuff but you have to pick up the commercial size wok with one hand and do sort of this backwards flip motion to cause the food to like fly up um, and to mix. And then you're using your other hand with the ladle and the wok itself is already gonna weigh like 10 kilos without any food in it because it's a commercial size wok. And so trying to pick that up with one hand and start to flip it when it's full of vegetables that are heavy, you realize like it's actually, it's really, really tough. And you see like, you know, chefs often have like these sort of like strong arms, strong shoulders um, in Chinese kitchens. And, you know, you see guys pulling noodles and you're like, oh, that doesn't look that hard. And then you give it a go. And like the actual noodle pulling when you're making it into strands is doable. It's learnable in a day. You're not gonna make them perfectly, um, exactly the same length or the, or not length, but the width rather but it's the part where you have to like stretch the dough and manipulate it and get the glutens to line up. And it is so hard. It is really difficult. And you have to have incredible shoulder strength. So there is this kind of separation between commercial chefs who are almost exclusively men in China to a lot of home chefs who or dim sum chefs, because that's a lot less like physically strenuous, but it also requires a lot more precision and they say smaller hands. So a lot of times you'll see female chefs who are who are doing sort of the dim sum aspect of cooking where it's folding, mm. pleating the dumplings, um, things like that, where it's not necessarily picking up the wok and doing the frying. So you have been working fine tour food tours for a while, but not forever. I just want to know what makes you tick? What keeps you going? What keeps you expanding and growing and learning the, the company and why? For me, it's just, it's always been about the food. I mean, I think the, the reason I moved back to China was because I, I got a taste of it and I just, I wanted to try everything. I can cook. I'm a decent cook, but I'm a much better eater. Um, and so I just absolutely love eating. Like my, my husband always jokes, like I, I get hangry really easily. And so he, he just says watching like a plate of food land on a table when I'm hungry, he's like, you can just see your mood change immediately. Like you're a completely different person when you have food in front of you. And I very rarely finish a meal without saying, so what do you want to do for the next meal? Um, <laughs> so I, it's just always been, I think it's, you know, an aspect of growing up in the South, um, where, you know, we're just feeders there. We just always want to make sure people have enough to eat. You never go anywhere without someone putting a plate of food in front of you. And my mother is an amazing baker. Um, so I kind of grew up with this aspect of like this hospitality, you know, the Southern hospitality with the food, but also my mom baking these amazing breads. And uh, she makes this cracked wheat bread that everyone in my neighborhood and my church and everything like that referred to as uh, Sarah bread. And that's my mom's name is Sarah. And so people would just go out of their way to do my mom favors because they knew at the end of the day, if they did something nice for my mom, she would give them a loaf of Sarah bread. Anything to do with food has always kind of like driven me. Even when I was in college and, you know, not doing anything related to food, I would just plan all of my meals and just think about food constantly. I tried to be a vegan and it lasted for like a day and a half uh, once. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do it. Um, China's the right yeah, place never... to be then. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Uh, no, I just, I honestly, like I spend 90% of my 
life, like of my waking life, either talking about food, writing about food, or thinking about food. Like I just, it's the only thing I think about. It's really ridiculous. I want to keep but asking you I about, I want to keep asking you about some of the stories behind food. Has there ever been a dish that you were served either through your tours or in your travels in China that had a really interesting story behind it? Oh my God. I think like every Chinese dish ever comes with a legend. It's truly amazing. Like how much you know, like literature goes along with Chinese food. I mean, even from like mooncakes and jiaozi, you know, the, the original dumplings were allegedly created by a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner who mm. um, he was making them with warming herbs because everyone in his village had frostbitten ears. And of course he made them look like ears because in traditional Chinese medicine, you eat the part of your body that is, um, you know, whatever is ailing you. So if you have liver problems, you should eat, you know, the liver of a pig and things like that. Um, and so, you know, the original word for dumplings for jiaozi was jiao er, which is tender ears. And then they just changed the character for jiao tender and made it jiaozi. I, I just love like little tidbits like that. And I think my favorite food story, like food legend in China, though, is probably to do with Zhuge Liang, who was a military strategist back in like the Three Kingdoms period. And he you know, allegedly created Jenbing and also Baozi, but he also created landmines, so he wasn't all good. <laughs> um, but the, uh, yeah, it was all things that happened to him while he was in the military. So his army lost all of their walks in battle and they had to make a hasty retreat. And so the, um, he told all of his cooks to have their soldiers turn their shields over the fire and they mixed together millet flour and water and made the first Jenbing. And the next day they fought their way out of an ambush. And so it became this like legendary pancake. And of course now it's a lot more complicated than millet flour and water, but you have, you know, the scrambled egg and the different sauces and everything on top as well. But it's, you know, my favorite breakfast in, in China, definitely. And I love the regional variations on that too. Like you go to Beijing and it's like hefty. It's, you know, it's a heavy, heavy breakfast mm. pancake. Shanghai, it's like light and crispy. And so, you know, you get to try a lot of different types of it. I actually hadn't heard that story. So that I feel that's a very new insight for me. <laughs> so I, I only, I think, you know, we're running out of time here and I just have a few more questions for you. I'm curious about what's next for Untour Food Tours and where do you think you will go and continue to expand that endeavor? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we have three food tours in Shanghai. We have our breakfast tour, our, our dumpling tour, which actually also it's two hours of eating on dumpling tour and then a cooking class. So they learn to make dim sum. Um, and then we have our night eats tour. And in Beijing, we have breakfast and dinner as well. And we're really happy with how that's going um, in both cities. We have really great teams in place and they're doing an awesome job. And our next plan is to open in several more cities in 2019. Very exciting. And then beyond the tour, is, is there any other projects that you're working on that, you're, that are bubbling up that you're getting excited about? Or is it really focusing on expanding the tour model to new cities? Yeah, we're really just focused on expanding the tour model right now to some new cities. That's great. And I have to ask you, what is the best meal that you've ever shared? I think there's something about the food, but also the people that you share a meal with. And it's very typical. It's very difficult to actually go. I was once in Chengdu and I went to Hot Pot by myself. And that was not a very good experience. So... You know, I think sharing a meal is so important in China 
and is very universal and curious about the best meal that you've ever shared. Oh, that's so hard. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of great meals in China. I, I had one, um, I had a Chinese roommate when I lived in Hangzhou and she took me back to her family village which was a, you know, a village of 800 people and they had their own dialect, which boggled my mind back in, you know, 2007 when I first learned about all the different dialects in China. And her family owned a little restaurant and hotel. And so we, uh, it was during a holiday, so we, the whole family sat down together and we got to bao jiaozi together, so wrap up the dumplings. Um, and they invited like all the, you know, the important people in the village to come and have dinner. And then of course we had the dumplings during the dinner and none of the villagers could imagine that I could actually speak Chinese. And so at one point, one of them was leaning over and looking at one of the dumplings that had clearly been bowed poorly and was falling apart basically. And he was like, oh, I think the foreigner must have bowed that one. And I was like, yes, that was, that was definitely me. Um, but it was such a fun experience getting to like actually do, you know, what all of my local friends have talked about, which is like sitting around with your family for like hours in the kitchen and just making dumpling after dumpling after dumpling. And, um, and that's how you get good at it. So that was really fun. And in terms of your company or just your professional life in general, was there ever a piece of advice that someone once gave you that you found yourself giving to someone else recently? Yeah, I would say that would definitely be surround yourself with great people. Um, you know, a lot of my guides, I think, are better guides than I ever was. They're fantastic. They're so passionate about food. And when you, we actually, we, we don't get to see our guides that often because of, um, you know, they're, they're out guiding and they don't come into the office. And so we do a monthly meetup in both Shanghai and Beijing uh, so everyone can get together. And we usually eat somewhere awesome and have some nice um, alcohol to go along with that. It's a little happy hour. Uh, and it's just such a great day every time we do it where I get to see all of the people who are out there being ambassadors for Chinese food to these foreigners who are visiting um, and really like seeing all of them in action talking about food it's just really nice to to be around that much passion and that much love about China and Chinese food oh that's such a great note to end on this has been really such a pleasure Jamie I've really appreciated you taking the time to to share more about your experiences and your company and your passion for food. I think it just exudes from the way that you talk. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Of course. And that's everything for this time. Tafer Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser, Jason, and the rest of the team at SubChina and Seneca. Our team can be reached at ta.4.ta.china at gmail.com. You can also follow at SubChina News for updates about our episodes. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta4Ta. For Ta.